You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. We've had the first drop in official interest rates in nearly three years and it's generally accepted there is more to come. Great news if you're paying a mortgage and haven't fixed your rates. Not so great if you're a self-funded retiree. But what does it really say about the economy overall? In the lead up to the recent federal election, we were often told the economy was in great shape. However, now it's all over. There's talk of Australia being on the brink of a recession. And I have to say, I personally have headline fatigue following an onslaught of sensationalist negativity about the property market over the past two years. So who or what should we take notice of? Well, an economist, of course. So in this episode, we're picking the brains of Warren Hogan, who has made a career out of making the analysis of the economy useful for business, government and investment managers. Warren currently wears a number of hats, including that of industry professor at UTS Business School and chief economic advisor of the Executive Connection. He was formerly the chief economist for the ANZ Bank. So I think we can expect some very thoughtful and commercial insights from this discussion. Thank you for joining us today, Warren. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you, Warren. Uh, good intro there, Veronica, because I think that's been the problem. We, you know, it's, everything's been worrying about the election and just getting the election through. Now the election's over and we're starting to see rate cuts. Now people are thinking about the real problem, which is the economy. And um, I'd love to get your insights. Are we on the path to a recession? Um, well, we could always be on the path to a recession. You never know what's around the corner, but I don't think that we are in terms of what you're getting at. I don't think it's a slow sort of burn process the mm. you know the housing market's down people are spending less and then the next step be that banks stop lending housing markets fall again people start losing their job and the whole mm -hmm. thing sort of goes into a hole I mean, there's a probability maybe one in three that that could happen along with trade wars and a few other things but mm. i think you know we're actually seeing how good this economy works uh, we had a housing bubble Mm -hmm. um, lots of elements to it, but yep. um, it was a bubble in Sydney and Melbourne and uh, we burst it uh, through a variety of measures and just about any bursting of a major economic bubble in any country all through history usually does result in recession. This economy, we, we're, 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 we're sort of taking it on the chin. Mm. It's not pretty at the moment. The consumer is going through a major balance sheet repair effort and then cutting their spending in recognition of lower wealth also with lower income growth as well. And that's taken a lot of the wind out of the economy sales, but we're getting there. And I think, uh, I think there's the, the central case is still that we're, we're going to get through it. Um, so yeah, no, I don't think we're going into recession, but the, the rhetoric has certainly changed and it seemed that that election seemed to be the big turning point, mm. um, where, yeah. you know, everything was fine to rate cuts and headlines of recession. I agree. And that's uh, an interesting point in itself. What is the technical definition of a recession? Here in Australia and most countries, it's two um, quarters, six months of uh, negative economic growth, which, you know, is is really a broad, uh, naive 
definition, but we use it and we haven't had a recession on that basis since 1991. Mm. Bearing in mind in 1991, that was our financial crisis. That was very similar to the great recession that the US and Europe experienced in 2008. Westpac mm. almost went out the back door like Lehman Brothers and ANZ wasn't far behind. They had mm-hmm. to be recapitalized. That was a bad recession. Unemployment got to almost 11%, just like it did in the US. Yeah, so we haven't had a recession for 30 odd years. So, you know, what happened to the property market back then? Look, it was a commercial property recession and a corporate uh, debt problem that drove all of that. And actually, the uh, property prices were falling uh, and they'd actually been going up quite substantially in the late 80s. Um, But the big cuts in interest rates we got, you know, because they'd got up to 18%, I think, and I think Mm -hmm. the mortgage rate had got up to like 16%. Yeah. Yeah. People were working second jobs and rice to pay their mortgage, which I was still interesting. And I was working with people who had second jobs to pay their mortgage. Yeah. 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 And that's a really important insight we shouldn't lose about what people in this country Mm. will do in a non-recourse environment to pay their mortgage. People often lose sight of that um, in the last 10, 15 years, but- Anyway, the, the big drop in interest rates that came in the wake of that recession um, made housing so much more affordable um, that as soon as the economy stabilised, uh, the, the house, housing prices stabilised and probably were an important element of getting the economy going because we got a really nice bounce in 94 and um, it's been blue sky ever since in many respects. So. You said that, you mentioned that we're chugging along or we're going to we'll get, you know, some parts of the economy aren't doing well, so let's say retail, mm. um, consumer spending and things like that, but... What are the parts? What are our green shoots? Where are our positive parts? I mean, you work in education. I assume that's probably one part of it. Yeah, look, education's been strong for a while and uh, obviously it's the growth in the international um, uh, students. And I I think there's still a bit left in that, but um, it's an important sector. That's for sure. It employs a lot of people. uh, But I think the growth here is going to continue to be – around construction. I mean, you think about, oh, the economy is going into recession and just how much work is going on in building. And it's, and you know, yes, housing is going to come off, especially with the multi, the yeah. approvals for multis coming off. Um, but commercial is still strong. It might not be growing like it was in the last five years. And then of course, infrastructure, we're building yeah. a lot in this country. Um, businesses are still, you know, in good shape. And I think as long as they can get some visibility on you know, some stability, and I think the election was important there. I think mm. getting the coalition returned was big for that. And we're starting to see that with some business surveys, like, you know, in the last little while, last few weeks, that confidence is bouncing in that sector. So if they start investing, and they have yep. underinvested in the last, well, you could argue last 10 years. So mm. I think there's a lot of scope with new technologies for them to get out there and invest in their business. Um, and... Uh, the, the mining sector, um, mm. you know, there's a lot of projects which are still just sort of rolling off and so the actual investment numbers are, are still, still weakening. But you know, the, the strength in, in commodity prices and pretty much the strength in demand, and I, and I don't think it's a China-only story. I think it's beyond that. It's the whole mm. of Asia. So there's good investments. And we saw Adani seems to have been approved and I'm sure there's lots of other stuff. You know, record level high for $8 gold prices. So, Look, I don't see a boom coming, but the thing is, is a good, strong economic expansion is based on many different things. And what we need now is, you know, to keep a, a, an even keel on the economy while consumers are going through this adjustment to lower house prices, to lower income growth, so that we don't see, you know, that consumer hibernation, that consumer adjustment, you know, force businesses to start laying off workers. And that's where government fiscal stimulus, you could argue rate cuts, although I'd argue differently, but that's where just keeping some demand in the economy this year is important because I think as long as we've got the employment story there, which we do, 
as yep. of May, um, then I think we'll, we'll hang in there. And 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 actually, yeah, you know, what is what are we going to do to get consumers sort of you know back comfortable again? You know, we're not going to know it till we see it in aggregate. But you got to stabilize housing, so stabilize yep. the balance sheet, stabilize their net worth position, and make sure that wages growth doesn't have to go back to three and a half, four, or whatever it used to average yep. before the crisis. But it just needs to still be heading sort of gradually upward. And of course, employment and all of that, I think we'll see consumers go, oh, okay, well, maybe we can go and buy a new fridge or buy a new car. You know, the really bad stuff for the last 18 months has been everything related to what I'd call non-discretionary and durables. Anything you can delay, yep. um, luxury, anything that's like... You know, Housing. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, that's the... <laughs> but is that, is, uh, well, is the tax cuts that the Libs are talking about or trying to get through, is that a proxy for wage growth? Yeah, well, it is. Um, the, the, there's the, there's two ways or two things to look at. One is the lower middle income tax offset, which is essentially a cash handout Free cash. for a government that's ideologically opposed to cash handouts. That's, <laughs> that's my line. Um, <laughs> but when it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an offset. You yeah, know. yeah. Here's yeah. a thousand bucks. <laughs> we don't hand money out. Yes, you do. Um, And that's going to be, you know, because it is down targeting lower middle income earners, I would say, you know, people say, oh, well, it won't all be spent. You know, okay, what will it be done with it? Well, it'll be saved or used to pay off debt. Well, good. That'll get you close to the point where you're comfortable with your balance sheet again. So, Mm. you know, the thing Mm. will work. One way or the other. Yeah, but a lot of it will be spent, I think, is the reality. Yeah. I mean, it is. Well, it's what happened with the Rudd government after GFC, right? So, And this is bigger than that. So people underestimate what could happen in, you know, come August, September in terms of a nice little spurt to the... JB Hi-Fi. JB Hi-Fi, the <laughs> Asian manufacturing complex. Um, yeah. But look, yeah. it's it's all part of it. The, the longer-term tax cuts are critical. So I don't think we can... Un- mm. you know, people aren't stupid. So first of all, the fact that the government's budget's back into surplus. Look, I, you know, I don't think having a surplus is, you know, really... The be-all and end-all, but people should remember that when you've got a massively indebted household sector, the fact that the government's got its finances in order is a good thing. It mm. gives people the confidence to run a bit more debt, you know. Well, they know the government's got the ability to save them a little bit. Or that they're not going to have to increase taxes down the future. Mm. I mean, if you're in Europe, you know, yeah. and you've got these massive government debt, massive chronic deficits, Yep. you know that, you know... You probably don't want to build too much wealth or earn too much income because the government will come and take it. <laughs> Whereas we haven't got that problem here. And those tax cuts the government's outlining out to 2024, I mean, isn't it hilarious? Albo's out there saying, oh, it's a second or third, you know, election away. It's like, isn't the criticism that we don't do enough long-term thinking around yeah. policy making? Yeah. Albo, put it away. You've got bigger issues to deal <laughs> it's with. It's true, isn't it? Pass the tax cuts. Yeah. And, of course, the parliament in 2021 or 2022 will make an adjustment if the economy is not in good shape. I yeah. mean, but the thing is, if you tell Australians you're going to... It's coming. Yeah, that's structural reform because mm. it simplifies the tax system. We can all argue about the fairness element, but mm. it's structural reform and it's coming. And that's mm. the stuff that gets people... Not, I mean, fear has been a, a major play here in this household balance sheet adjustment, this adjustment mm. to the lower house prices, and that counteracts it. So I think they, the, the, the Labor Party has just had it handed to them. They've lost the unlosable election, and now they're arguing about stuff. They should just get this program through. And I'm, I'm not a big coalition guy or anything. I'm yep. just saying the Australian people went with these guys against the odds, and there must be something to it. Let this stuff through. Have a look at yourself and then come back, you know, in 2020 and we can recommence combat. 
Yeah, right. I mean the whole tax cut thing around the brackets. I think it's I think it's a really good policy. The reason why is that some people have got the strange warped view that they don't want to earn more money because it pushes you into the next mm. tax bracket. And it's like, well, hang on a sec. You're still earning the money, and you mm. still only got to give 38 cents to the government instead yeah. of 34 cents. Mm. You know, it's not a big difference. So. But you it's know, not on every dollar. That's what, if they don't understand the brackets, you know, yeah. it's just well, they, on the additional money. Yeah, that's right. So <clears> they don't really understand it. And so if you just simplify it and make it, you know, between that, you know, 40 mm. to 200, yeah. it's this tax bracket. It actually means that people won't even think like that. They'll just think, if I earn more money, that's great. We won't, you know, et cetera. So I think it's just a mindset. I think with the RBA, and I know you've done a bit of work around all that stuff over many years, um, the rhetoric and the stories kind of changed a lot. Mm. It, it's, you know, initially full employment was, say, <coughs> You know, five percent, but it seems like now that's four point five percent. We need to. Well, keep... that's what they reckon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just find it that the the, the, the stories change dramatically very quickly, and yeah. um, you know, with someone dealing with mortgages all the time, you know, I was expecting like most people that you know rates were going to stay flat or the RB, the banks weren't going to pass it on, and if anything, we we're mm -hmm. going to be at the bottom of the cycle. But it's like it's completely flipped. Mm. Um, what's your view on kind of what the RBA are thinking, and you know? What's good or what's good or not? Yeah, so they've turned a lot, um, and I think they have not turned because they think the economy is going into recession. So we can put a line through that, and I think mm. the government has made that quite clear. They're an inflation targeting central bank, two to three percent on average over the cycle. Now, for the average Australian, it's just a bunch of hogwash. They don't <laughs> even get it. But for the RBA, it is like the Bible. Um, it is. Why do you think that is? Oh, it's because it's well. The last major shake-up in central banking in the late 80s, the, the shift was towards inflation targeting. And, and look, the, yeah, from what all, everything I've ever done around this and you know, I've been looking at it for 30-odd years is that monetary policy is all about just trying to keep enough money in the economy to make it work. Um, and a great way to – and you, know, you need a little bit of inflation. We had a problem for most of you know, our living memory of too much inflation, but the reality over the long term is, is that you've got as many problems with too little as too much. Mm. But the problem is we've just seen too much pressure put on central banks. They got their independence, so they weren't affected by politicians theoretically and superstar central banks, and we've, we've, we've put, put too much on them and they've done too much. I think quantitative easing and everything was fine in an emergency situation, but it's now stuck, um, and we've got a whole range of problems, which you know we probably don't well, we can go into if you want to. But in terms of the RBA right now, they cut um, because inflation is – way too low for their target. Now, I was making the argument that their target's too high. It was set up in 1993 when we were a high-inflation economy. Um, the rest of the world has a target of effectively one to three, two, um, but one to three in our sort of flexible sense, not two to three. Mm. Um, but they they want to stick with two to three. They think it's important that they have that, that, that uh, continuity, that it anchors inflation expectations. And the bottom line is, Inflation was slowly going up in 2018. Then the last six months of readings we got, it just went boom. So it was just mm. getting up to two, bottom of their target. Then this has gone bang down to, in core terms, down to sort of one five. So that scared them. And they feel that if their target's going to have any credibility, they've got to respond. So it's not about the economy being really weak. In fact, I'd say my guess is that, you know, their reading on the economy hasn't changed in the last six months. They're going to wing it. I think they'd share the view that I have that we're we're dealing with an adjustment to a bubble and we're getting through it pretty well. You mm. know, it's not going to be pretty, but we we're we're tough. Mm. We can take it. We can get through this as a community. So can, um, we, can we explain just for people who may not understand 
the lever of inflation or, or why it's important. Yeah. You know, what happens, I mean, what makes it go up? Yeah. And then why don't we want it to go too high and why don't we want it to go too low? Yeah, so in a theoretical perfect economics land world, I, <laughs> what you see in a textbook is... Well, no, you learn at uni, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing as inflation. Mm. Um, what matters in our um, market economy um, is relative price changes and that's what sends the signal to do things. But in reality, you know, central banks or whoever controls the money supply, as a central bank, um, you know, can't perfect that. So there's always going to be some, some guesstimation around that. And then there's also stickiness. So relative prices don't change instantly, although with modern technology, mm. it's getting more mm. instant. And this is actually one of the issues around inflation is, so back when we set up inflation targets in the, in the early 90s, the accepted wisdom around the world was that you need a little bit of inflation. 2% seems to be about right. We need to let the system work. You don't want to have zero and mm. be too penal. Um, but I actually think because of technology and globalisation, it's actually more like one. So I think all it's inflation... It's tougher to get that inflation. That's exactly people right. people are being yeah. more productive. Well, because, you know, there's a big, another big part of economic theory in the modern context, especially in the new Keynesian frame, is um, downward price stickiness, particularly yep. wages. But, you know, again, our more modern market economy sees prices go up and down. You know, mm. look, at, look at the problems with Coles and Woolies. It's low prices every day. I mean, mm. it works, right? You stick... 50% off and people buy it. And that's yep. so prices are going up and down. Whereas pre 1990, prices tended to be there or go up. You know, mm. price stability was, you know, the option for prices going up. Um, so, anyway, look, I, I, that's what the RBA are doing. They're trying to get their two to three target. I think it's too high. Um, they're scared of changing it because they think if you change it, it loses its credibility. I think they overplay its credibility. Mm. My analysis of expectations of everything from, you know, professional financial market participants to everyday consumers is what affects your expectation about the next couple of years most is what's going on right now, mm. not what a central bank tells you or not what the long-term average is or whatever. But, you know, they, they, that's the frame they want to see it in. I don't think there's anything wrong with it um, other than cutting interest rates from very low levels to virtually nothing yep. comes with risks. And they've... It's anywhere to go, does it? it? Well, it doesn't give you... I mean, a lot of people talk about running out of ammo and you know, that's one debate. But, you know, people sort of think about low interest rates. The problem is runaway inflation. But, you know, we're seeing in Europe and Japan and other yeah. countries that yeah. there's other consequences. And especially in a world where there is no inflation because of technology, because of global supply chains, because of oversupply in the global economy around manufactured goods... And asset price inflation. Well, the thing is, I, I actually think that the, the, the way inflation, extra money supply escapes is no longer through CPI, through consumer prices, because mm. there's so much competition, discipline and everything all around the world. We're in a global marketplace for most retail goods that it's increasingly escaping uh, through value of asset prices. Yep. And, you know, in America, you see it in the equity market. In this country, mm -hmm. you see it in the housing market. Mm. And that's because we... Uh, no longer have major credit constraints on consumers. So you go back to the 1970s and you had to beg your bank manager for a bank yeah. loan in this country. Yeah. yeah. But now you can, you know, buy a house with a credit card. Well, maybe not, but, you know, get my idea here. And <laughs> well, you can through something like BrickX. It's a fractional problem. <laughs> well, okay, there you go. You can. Um, that scares the shit out of me. But, anyway. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, the, 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 that's exactly right. So the, the excess liquidity that, loose monetary policy yeah. entails is it's coming through asset prices, which, you know, people like, you know, Ben Bernanke is really the, the father of the modern QE, you know, modern approach to this unconventional monetary policy. 
Um, which I was a good thing, you know, because otherwise we were staring at the Great Depression and another World War Two. Well, yeah, their political social outcomes, which of course are exacerbated by the economic scene, but the question that we now face ten years down the tra- track with Trump, France riots, everything is well. Are we going to change that? Are we just kicking the can down the road? And there are, I think, there's more in bad outcomes around the fact that you know one of the reasons that you have a capitalist or market economy is that they're brutally efficient. They take resources away from the least effect, yeah. efficient to the mm-hmm. most efficient. And yet, you know, I sort of sit there and tell all these small businesses in Australia that you know there's no productivity or hardly any, and they look at me and go, "Well, we are just reinvesting digital technology. I mean, things are changing so yeah. much; it just doesn't make sense." Well. Maybe this low interest rate environment is meaning that we're just not getting rid of enough inefficient companies. And you're certainly getting a lot of academic studies now showing that in mm. Japan and Europe, the zombie firm. And creating wow. bigger inequality between the rich and the poor. Which is- That's the other one. That's the other one is that when you use asset prices as your, as your vehicle for, for driving, uh, driving monetary policy in the economy, you're going to get inequality. And that, yep. you know, you could, again, you know, the sort of the, the, the smartest guy in the room, economist type, can sit there and go, well, that's going to mean the economy is going to do fine. Well, yeah, but what's it going to do to your political, you know, outcomes? Mm. But also if you've got, if you keep increasing the, the money to the rich, you know, they can only spend so much. They can only get so many dinners. They can only buy so many shirts. Why they buy houses. Yeah. Well, they keep <laughs> buying other assets. So they don't, they're not going to spend that money. They're just going to keep saving and investing. And Hence where we are. You know, you, you, mm. position, you spread that money across the whole population. Yeah, there's more in the economy. They kind of keep spending. You keep the whole system going. So you, you, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot by just pushing up asset prices. And um, Exactly. It's, yeah. But it's, on the flip side of that, though, you've got the wealth effect, right? So when you've got a situation that we've just had where what Sydney prices are full on, full on 11% mm. or whatever and people think that, their home, which is most people's greatest asset if they own one, um, it's not worth as much as it was, and so therefore they contract all that spending. You talked about retail spending earlier, so there is such a thing as the wealth effect, mm. isn't there? Yeah. And so that's obviously in their minds, you know, because totally. they still have an asset, whether it's well, especially or with an aging population where people are closer to retirement, um, people are very sensitive to it. They yes. are literally doing the calculations on what that nest egg needs to look like. Mm. What you know, if I. How many Australians, when they get to 60, 65, want to down, you know, sell the $3 million, $2 million family home and buy a one or one and a half million dollar, you know, townhouse to live in? And if that suddenly that is a, you've wiped out 200 grand through a fall in prices, yep. then yeah. people go, well, I have to find 200 grand somewhere. And when you're earning 100 grand a year, finding 200 grand is hard work. Mm, yeah. Mm. So the wealth effect's real. The other thing is, is that, you know, the wealth effect operates through just availability. So, you know, the mortgages in this day and age with all the, you know, the, the products is, is they're basically a credit card, right? And so if your house prices are going up and look, yep. to be fair, since the crisis, since 2008, Australians haven't been doing this. They certainly did it in the original housing boom of sort of 98 to 05, but yep. you know, house price goes up by hundred grand, you know, mortgage redraw, let's go to Fiji. You know, oh, I have come across people that have been using mortgage redraw. Uh, draw to pay the kids' school fees and yeah, yep. and, go and that's on an investment. You could, argue, you could argue that's mm. an investment. I mean, you it, it's not it. sustainable, no. but it's an no. investment. It's a long-term investment. Oh, but that's, a... that's coming from someone in the education sector. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's getting harder. <laughs> it is getting harder. I mean, there's some banks, well, especially cash-out policies, and you know, before banks would just throw the money at you if you set up to 80%, for example. You know, there was no questions really asked. It was easier. It was was easy. And now, I mean, there's a few banks that will do it. Most banks will put a limit on it of 50, Mm. 100 grand. Or they want the money to be, you know, 
on something that'll add value to the house or be part of the house. Or... Yeah, they want some serious evidence for renovations or if it's mm. construction, etc. Or if you're going to buy another investment property, they'll give it to you if you've got a contract, etc. But you know, before you're right, like it was, you know, and then you would you you give the people the money to the people, and then mm. it's up to them what they want to do with it. And well, I think future. I think you know if you're not. A first-home buyer, or you know, someone who's right on the edge in terms of your LVR, um, the banks I think are still pretty accommodating. I mean, the, the reality is the LVR of the bank big four books, bank uh, mortgage books, is is under fifty percent. So yep. mm. most people are massively, um, you know, under. got huge equity. Mm. And you know, if you've got a, you know, one point eight million dollar home that you've got a equivalent of a mortgage of two hundred grand on, and you want to borrow fifty grand to go on a you know, once in a lifetime family holiday. I'm sure that you could you won't hear still be a way around it. Yeah, I'm sure you could. I think that's one of the points that a lot of property doomsdayers um, like to play on. this. I was so in debt, we're so in debt, and you know, it's yeah, a portion are first home buyers. You know, people who have bought in the last say mm. five years, they might be in negative equity, but the vast majority of the 10 million properties out there, you know, maybe three of them are, are paid off fully. You know, maybe three of them have got very low mortgages, and yeah, you know, you know one or two have got high mortgages. And I think people forget that there's so much wealth that's just completely paid off. There's a lot of equity there, but there needs to be because the people, unlike businesses or governments, have a life cycle. So I think one of the scarier <laughs> elements is, um, yeah, we, we have to get to a point of zero debt, yeah. <clears throat> preferably before we die, um, to get to that nest egg in retirement. Mm. Um, but look, there's a lot of innovation there too in terms of reverse mortgages and and I think the culture, I mean, my father did a review of aged care, you know, 25 years ago and the culture he found around, you know, people using their nest egg and their wealth and selling the family home to pay for a really high quality standard of, you know, last five years of your life aged care, so much resistance. And there was mm. both, you know, in terms of the children and their inheritance and entitlement. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, it's yeah. it's not talked about, but it's sitting <laughs> oh, out there. It's an elephant. And, we love an elephant. Oh, yeah, yeah. You speak to politicians about to try and deal with that. Has it changed? Um, I think that I think oh, look, I'm not in that space, yeah, and yeah. it's a very tricky area to um, get a good read on about mm. people's attitudes to this. But the reality is, it, it is changing. And look, I think this generation of people under the age of forty probably are going to have a, a much different view on that sort of inheritance entitlement as a general. Concept. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wealthy yeah. people are always going to feel entitled, but um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it is changing, but. Because the, the reality is of an aging population. But point being is, you know, we do need to have, yeah, there are limits to the debt. Um, yeah. and, and look, we ha it's all new. I mean, the first thing we should look at in Australia is our mortgage levels and household debt levels is that, you know, they might be the highest in the world at 190 yeah. or whatever it is. But like the next three are 175 to 190. And then, you know, the lowest is right. 140. You go back 30 years and we're all... 70 or 80%. I, mm. It's a global phenomenon, which just reflects the fact that technology and reforms in the, well, the 80s really opened up the access to credit to the household sector. Mm. And you, we, what we're trying to do is find out what an optimal level of leverage is. And that has input, you know, that's determined by lots of things like demographics and things. Yep. But in the end, debt is all about being able to service it. Um, and so keeping interest rates low. Is a is a great is a great short term <laughs> yeah short term help, mm. but if it encourages a debt level, I mean this is the good thing. I mean, can you imagine what Australia would look like if the RBA cash rate went to seven percent? Um, there would be a small mushroom cloud form over our economy. Yes. The RBA cash rate probably couldn't go 
much higher than about two, three quarters to three and a quarter yep. um, without causing a recession in my view. And that's a guess, but, you know, I've been sort of looking at these things for a long time. And yeah, because so, we, we get used to interest rates at a certain level. I think, you know, if someone said, I think people are getting used to 4% in their head now, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago people were thinking fives. And, oh, seven know, for a mortgage rate was, yeah, the, exactly. was so, for years that was the benchmark. So I think, you know, people are getting, you know, we've been down to fours probably for five years now or something like that. Well, probably, you know, so mm. three to four. Well, um, we're heading towards three pretty quickly right now. Yeah, that's right. And I think the, I mean, that's one of the reasons why they want inflation though, isn't it as well? Because, you know, inflation, you know, inflation gets rid of debt, gets rid of debt. And I yeah. think that, you know, the reality is if we can kind of keep pushing up wages and <coughs> pushing up products and profits and um, the government's debt as its percentage of GDP, if our GDP keeps driving, then it doesn't look like we're in that much debt, does it, if we keep... Yeah, but the, the question is whether or not they can achieve that, and there is yeah. some real question marks. So the US economy now has had its longest ever economic expansion uh, in its history or since the Civil War. Um, it's got its lowest unemployment rate um, in 70 years or something, um, and inflation isn't where they want it to be. Mm. Now, I don't know what they're going to have to do to get it above it, but... Even if they got the unemployment rate to zero um, and the economy was running for another five years, you could still find the environment where inflation is maybe just a bit about above two in the sense that there's something going on around the inflation process yep. that is not as responsive to monetary policy. And the big issue with so much when you're looking at societies, whether it's politics and general policy or economic policy, is fighting the last war. Mm. And I think every, I mean, there should be like a whole section of the RBA devoted to, are we fighting the last war? Which is mm -hmm. essentially saying, what are all the things that could go wrong if we just keep doing this frame? But yep. what we've seen in the last three months from the RBA is a reaffirmation of their longstanding frame around things like not, uh, non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, i.e. what's mm -hmm. full employment, lowered it, um, you know, yep. lower interest rates, more growth, higher wages. That whole frame is just could potentially in 10 years' time we might look back and go, that was where the mistake was made, that the world changed and they didn't recognise it. What about the relation, uh, the relation to Japan and, you know, that there have been <clears throat> low interest rates to say 20-odd 20, 20 years and, you know, and, and people are thinking we're turning Japanese is what, you know, sometimes you start to read what's your yeah. you want. Well, totally. You know? I mean, Japan, Japan has got away with it. Some extent, I believe, truly because they were experiencing deflation um, and they had um, this quantitative easing starting in the late 90s when others didn't and because they were in it, because they got an open capital account, I, they, money flows in and out of their economy, they sort of, the, 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 the damaging effects of it sort of dissipated to some extent. But they've got a massive demographic issue, which many yep. countries do. Um, you know, their natural, their population is shrinking now. Their workforce is shrinking at sort of one, one and a half, I think, which means that, you know, their starting point for economic growth is minus 1.5%. Now, if they get one and a half percent of productivity growth, which is a struggle anywhere in the world at the mm -hmm. moment, then they get zero growth. Arbe four years ago came out and said, we're going to go for 2% growth. Where are you going to get that from, pal? You know, what are you going to blow up in the meantime to get that? You know, it's about sustainability. It's about taking a, a long-term view. I mean, obviously they've retreated on that, but it just shows you how far out of whack the politicians are with underlying economic reality. I mean, even just our latest, you know, it's good to see Morrison not emphasise as much, but the, the Turnbull government was jobs and growth. 
Yeah, oh, God. Yeah. It's like, let's just, you know. Was answer to every single question that was ever posed and to them? I, yeah, and I can Dogs. tell you from a macro st- sustainability debt, all that sort of stuff, is, is there all question marks about that? Now, mm. And that's not even bringing into things like the environment. Yep. You know, blah, 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 blah. Technology, so, blah, yeah, blah, blah, yeah. So It's not physically possible to keep growing, is it? I mean. Well, it. <laughs> Well, I don't you know. know. I mean, the, the strains on the have. the strains on the environment are, are becoming pretty obvious. I think, mm. um, both from a pollution um, and then a shifting around the atmosphere and climate. And so, obviously, a lot yep. of different views on that. And then, of course, just resource extraction and sustainability. But yeah, I think that's right. I, I think you know where we're headed because people are ultimately sensible, and the economic system is good at getting us there. It's a bit clumsy. What, what's the old saying? It's the worst system there is. It's just better than all the others. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was Churchill about democracy. But um, it's going to be about the quality of growth for the next 50 years. It's not going to be about the quantum. It's going to be about the quality. And the thing is, new technologies are fast-tracking our ability to make good decisions and not just, you know, the smartest people in the room or the politicians with their advice from all of government. I'm talking about every single person in the community because of access to you know, their little phone and all the information in there. I mean, we've, we're going through a process, early process right now, just sorting out what's fake news. I think it's pretty much the opposite to what Donald Trump says. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that information and quality of information and, you know, objectives around the environment, objectives around equality. I mean, I think the, the, the economic system of the last 30 years, and don't get me wrong, I'm a big believer in free markets, just that, you know, they need to be, Realise when they, what their weaknesses are, but the big one of the big problems has been the rise of inequality. Uh, not as bad in this country as elsewhere, and that has political ramifications mm. in a democracy, as we're seeing in the United States. Yeah. Um, so look, there's, there's a lot of sustainability issues, and we've been really good at and pragmatic in this country at sort of resisting bits, all sorts of parts of that. Um, but the problem with the Reserve Bank is, I think, you know, they've they've sort of almost thrown up the white flag on rates, and now we're we're heading towards that zero interest rate, uber easy monetary policy world where we don't fully understand the negative consequences. I think what I've, I mean, even just in the recent housing downturn and we've seen what's precipitated it, which has been policy rather than interest rates because interest rates has always been the end of the, you know, mark the end of the boom or created the end of the boom in previous times. And Mm. so this is new uncharted territory. The drivers are different. The Mm. reactions are different. We don't quite know how it's all going to play out. And I often wonder about in just generally in terms of the economy, and I'm not an economist, um, but if you use all the frameworks you've always used, all the theories that have always worked in the past and they stop working because technology and the use and globalisation, all these things that fundamentally shift the foundations of everything, how everything works, Mm. then... How useful are those frameworks? Yeah, look, they are very useful and I don't think that a lot of the, the fundamental sort of principles of economics have changed. It's just that, you know, I'm, uh, what I'm saying has changed is the, the relationship between money supply and CPI. Mm. Um, and, you know, it happened in the 80s where they had a breakdown in um, the way the monetary policy or what they thought the way monetary policy worked. Um, the principles are all still there, mm. but economics is abused by politicians and business to some extent, you know, not constantly, but at times, to get what they want. Um, so I don't think we should throw it out. But we're in a world where, you know, inflation um, isn't the only sort of casualty of globalisation and new technology. And I think we, you know, we're in a higher level of uncertainty. So, mm. for example, the, the old frameworks tell you that property markets should get a real kick from a cut in interest rates. And also if the APRA yep. mortgage poor thing goes through. <clears throat> yeah. Well, we've seen and that guess what? I think, I think it yeah. will. 
I think it will. Well, yeah. I remember back in jumped. I remember back in 2016, it was May and August were the two rate drops, are the last ones we had. And, our, and so we document this in our business in terms of we reflect what's happening in the current market every, all the time. And and I remember at May, just before that drop, we, we were feeling signs that this boom was going to, was starting to peter out and that just kicked along again. And exactly mm. the same thing in August that year. And then it kicked it right through to the end of the year, yeah. right through 2017 into, into May 2017. And and it was really noticeable um, yeah. at that time. So yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think the Liberal winning the uh, the election that's had an Im- immediate impact, massive impact. It, open houses. You know, I've spoken to agents said the following Wednesday when they had their open houses, they saw immediate noticeable increase in people going through open houses. Mm. And now I've actually seen so those leading indicators. That's one. Uh, auction clearance rates is another one. It's and, an important one. And this is, in, this is in a situation where we've still got difficulty getting finance. And I think that'll ease back. I mean, the banks, you know, writing mortgages and loans to small businesses are where they make their money. And it's their role in our community. Mm. So I think they're obviously being stung by responsible lending and they're trying to sort of get that sort of house, part of their house in order. But I think they've done a lot on that. And I think, it, I think they will um, sort of ease back a bit. Um, and, and some of them, is, I think ANZ have come out and said as much few months ago. So look, I think, I think there's a good chance we're going to get a bounce in the market and clearance rates are telling you that in, um, early 2020 annual house price growth in Australia should be somewhere around 5%, you know, which yeah. I think probably implies from here, a probably a 7% rise. Now that, that actually tells you, you know, what the RBA has done is stupid because, you know, they, they, they're telling us they're trying to avoid a recession or they're in, you know, people are saying they're doing it to avoid a recession. There's no evidence that we're going into a recession. I think they're doing it because their inflation target is so far away from where inflation is, so they're trying to defend an inflation yep. target, but I think that's the wrong target. They should change it. And then if they, if we go and restoke the housing market and yeah. get household mm. debt going again, it's like back, where we started. back to, where we back were. to square mm. one. What do you yeah. want? Do you want us to go into a recession to sort of sort this out or do you <laughs> want to just gradually try and get this? We were doing such... It was going so well, you know. Yeah. I mean, you guys are in the market, and you know, you know, your business has been affected because the turnovers down so much. Yeah, but we're just getting through it, yeah. you know. And and it was so. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I I, I'm, I could be wrong. Maybe the housing market won't bounce because there's enough fear. But um, people got jobs, and people need houses. Yeah, and, and, and we've know, got an undersupply um, too. That's another thing. <coughs> people have not. You haven't mentioned this, but we literally do not have enough houses, even with all the apartments and everything. Mm. We do not have enough houses. Mm. Um, on the basis of historical sort of headship rates to for all of Australians. So. Yeah, I mean, the assessment rate's a big one. We've just yesterday, Westpac have kind of come out and they've started to reduce their assessment rate. And I was thinking, oh, it's not going to make that much of a difference really, you know, but I've already seen in the last week where we've looked at applications and we thought, actually, you know what, we need that additional assessment rate. That means it pushes up their purchase price or they could do with that extra you know, five or 10% borrowing capacity. Mm. And so I'm already starting to see, well, actually, this is actually a quite a decent benefit um, on mortgage applications. Mm. And it doesn't seem like much, but it will actually help people just kind of get more confidence with their borrowing capacity. And all you need to see, I think, to really get the confidence going is prices not to go down for a Correct. few months. And then yeah. people just go, okay, I'm not catching a falling sword or yeah. whatever the saying is. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, this is a life decision for most people. I know. And you guys know better than me. What makes you laugh though? It's like oh, I'm waiting to see what happens. Like, so you're waiting to see prices rise again and then you'll buy? Yeah. <laughs> it's like. Yeah. Well, it's the lags too. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, 
it's a big process for the average person going through this. As you know, it takes months. Yes. And, you know, people are sensible. And mm. our Sydney, how often do you get to buy into the Sydney property market after it's fallen by 15%? Mm. Answer, a few times a century. Yeah. Mm. So I got a feeling people will get that. And I think spring this year could be okay. We're seeing, look, I'm seeing that already in my business. That, and that is very much the commentary. Why have you decided that now is the time you want to buy? Because we've been watching, you know, we might have been looking in the boom. We decided prices were overheated. We didn't want to play part in that. Now we can see that there's value again. Yeah. And it's stabilised. We've had the shakeout. Mm. We've had um, panic. I mean, last November 2018 was panic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. summer recess in the Australian property market could not mm. have come sooner. Put it Fongo. <laughs> Fongo. Fear of not getting yeah. out. <laughs> oh, no, it was worse than that. It was the fear of falling into a live volcano. Yeah. Um, and then look, it, 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 the, the, the autumn season was all about just, you know, lower volumes, the market just sort of treading water and, you mm. know, that sort of that, yeah. that panic getting out of the market. And then the RBA cut and the APRA moves. And hopefully broader economic stability. I mean, the trade war stuff that's sitting there, that's sort of not good. But then equity markets, mm. you know, all-time highs. Mm. Australia's yeah, US again last night, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons to, to think that, you know, once we get through into early September, we could, you know, through the back end of winter. I know August is probably the quietest month, right? Mm. Or July. July really is, July. is the quietest. And, and certainly, you know, we're heading into winter and, and it's very, very typical to have low stock. You know, when you see though, there was a graph that you actually put yeah. linked in from CoreLogic the other day. Um, you know, it's cyclical. Sydney property market is cyclical anyway. Um, I think they all are actually in terms of the seasons. But mm. Sydney, you can very, very clearly see there's an absolute dip in volumes, listing volumes uh, in in winter and then they take off in spring. And, and I think in my 20 years I've only seen – I think two springs where too much stock didn't hit the market and demand didn't leave the market, so therefore <clears> prices didn't sort of even off, uh, ease off mm. uh, in spring. It only happened twice where it didn't. It was 2007, 2016, I can remember the two years. Where it, it went, where prices it just went, went up. gangbusters right up to Christmas, yeah. went nuts, yeah. And that's 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 bubble territory, or that's mm. top of yeah. the cycle stuff. Yeah. So this, this coming spring, the signal that the economists should be looking for is stability. And if prices are stable and, and volumes pick up a bit, mm. Um, then that's a really healthy sign, right? I think the pent-up demand thing is a really big one because I'm starting to see that through just inquiry where people are coming to me and they've got an apartment and they were frustrated with the boom in 16 and 15 and they got pushed out. They went to auctions. Prices were going gangbusters and their incomes were a bit lower. Their savings were a bit lower and they just thought it's all too much. Let's just leave it. And they've just been sitting in the market. They've been living in an apartment They've been wanting to get into the housing market and then 17, 18 came around and then they start to see price falls and they're like, well, there's no point buying now. And then now we're into 19. And so you've got like four or five years, I think, of pent up demand of, you know, and and first home buyers, basically, you know, these are young families. Now they've got the kids or they're thinking about having kids. Well, I think we've got a couple of economists who think the RBA cash rate is going to half a percent. So that should really drag those people into this market. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. uh, Do you agree? No, not at, well. I don't know what they're going to do. They're um, they've got to make their decision. Um, I think I think it could go to half a percent if we get some sort of a shock. You know, like a, a global political meltdown. I think uh, just recently we've seen Iran shoot down a U.S. drone in in um, in the Gulf. That could deteriorate rapidly. So, ex- barring all that stuff, I actually think the underlying dynamics are for um, things to go 
pretty well. And mm. therefore, I think the RBA, the RBA is going to deliver another cash rate cut. Yep. They just said yep. it. They can't about face They're hard on that. and fast. Yeah, I think they want to whack in 50 points, which I, begs the question why they need to just do 50 last That's month. what I yeah. thought. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, when I give it to people, people feel better and it's better for the banks to play the PR game. Well, it's <laughs> well, it's harder for the banks. They've got to do it twice, right? Um, <laughs> I think I think um, there is good reasons for it. Yeah. Um, it also, one of the ones is that once the last rate cut's done and no one's talking about it, you lose that sort of yeah. impact on the community. Yeah, so psychological. Hanging it out there is probably not a bad thing. Keep it on the front pages of the mm. papers. Yeah, mm. yeah, and to get it in the spring, I, I, I mean, if if they really were wanting to be cute about it, which they're not, um, but you'd you'd hold that next rate cut through to probably the September meeting at the beginning yeah. of September, mm. and have probably have October, people actually. have people in the markets debating it for two months, yeah, yeah, and then deliver it, mm. and then hope that gives you some bang for your buck. We all want the sugar hit though, so you know. You know, would rather just give it to us now rather than let's think that it might not come. Well, the RBA actually sits back and takes a view that you know it's what level of interest rates is appropriate and just get it there sort of thing. And mm. they don't think about those. There's not a lot of thought put into those sorts of things. Or they if, right. they if they do think about it, then they can leave themselves open to criticism about what they're doing and stuff. They tend to sort of you know not so, not want to get too detailed about. So they don't things. think too much around the behavioural side of impact on change oh, of consumer behaviour. They're more I, thinking we want to get to this target. Oh, look, they, they, they will and they'll definitely talk about it and, yep. you know, there'll be 10 views on 10 different things up there at Martin Place. But in terms of their ultimate thinking and what they've got to sort of use as their decision framework is what's the right level gotcha. of interest rate. So how they, science-based. Yeah, I mean, everyone in the market, all the market participants who live and breathe this stuff day to day, they'll all come up with their own little stories. They'll mm. backfill and you know, make it interesting for people to talk about, but in the end, it's just a, you know, a decision. Can they go to half a percent? I don't think they will. And I think that's dangerous territory. I mean, the reality is, is that our economy is growing um, in nominal terms you know, in, in sort of between three and five, depending on how you measure it. And, you know, the most basic measure of what your interest rate should be or your monetary policy should be is an interest rate basically where your nominal growth is. That's pretty much what happened between 1990 and 2008. You know, there was divergences when they were trying to stimulate or hold back the economy. But since the crisis, global monetary policy has been persistently easy. And mm. we've got even your harshest interpretation of nominal economic growth right now is probably three, three and a half. And we've got a cash rate at 1.25, taking it to half. Mm. And there is the question about ammo, although I don't think that plays much into the RBA's thinking. Maybe it does. Mm. But I, I just think there's, there's dangers in it. And the worst thing here is we get a bounce in the housing market. So it's really good because that'll show the economy is good. Employments, yeah. jobs are there. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not great for the longer-term stability. There was a bit of uh, noise last month around that we are in a technical recession if we didn't keep importing people then we didn't <coughs> keep growing our population. So from a per capita basis, our um, we're actually going backwards. Yeah. Did you... Do you, you know, that's obviously we are going to keep importing people. So we are going to keep trying to attract top yeah. talent around the world. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter that we're no point doing the numbers on that we're not because we are going to. So uh. it's, I felt like it was a bit of a pointless argument because it's that's our, that's been our story forever. Yeah. I mean, it's a pointless argument for a number of reasons. One is that sort of angle you're coming out there. And the other one is, is that all it's saying is our rate of economic growth for a period of time is less than our rate of population growth. And, yeah. and everyone knows that economic growth is more volatile than population growth. Mm. It's actually what's called a growth recession or a mid-cycle slowdown or something like that. It's not an outright recession in the economy. Oh, the economy is not going backwards. Yep. Um, but it's a soft patch. And you, you need soft patch. You can't have booms without, mm. you know, you can't have strong periods without weak periods, fluctuations around the average. And 
we're, we're doing pretty well to reduce the volatility of the mm. economy, but you're going to have some ups and downs. So I think it's a silly, <laughs> silly point. We, we, the question of migration is going to continue to be a big one for this country. We're the, one of the biggest immigrant countries in the world. The, the size is huge. And we just had some data out in the last few days that showed that last year was 2008, Bumper. a massive year. Mm. Yes. And, you know, to think that, you know, especially people who come in um, as refugees or from, you know, less developed countries, they come in and, and have a big sort of positive impact straight away in terms of the economy um, is not right because that they, they've got a – they, they have a long-term positive impact, don't mm. get me wrong, but it just takes time. There's, a, there's actually a bit of a cost. Um I'm a big believer in, in immigration because it's sort of what Australia is, but there's definitely we should always be talking about it and thinking about it and not mm. see it in some sort of racial nationalistic frame. Mm. Um, it's just about what we can handle. Um, yeah, from a congestion and a growth and managing the urban dynamics. Of all it, of it. Making sure we keep the livability, I guess, of this country and the jobs. And, yeah. But, I and mean. we don't build buildings that yeah. start falling apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that that one wasn't sort of hitting its intended lifespan. Um, yeah, and I think it'd be good that we, we do that. <laughs> well, it did if you're a builder and you've only got warranty for seven years. It, we're just it's, um, referring to mascot towers here, yes. which we'll have to do a whole episode on. Yeah, it's not like something that survives <laughs> just more down the, road. the warranty period. Yeah. It's, um that's all that matters. I'd love to just get your thoughts. You have done a lot of work within the banks. Um, you know how banks think, and mm. you know behind the scenes, you did kind of talk about a topic that's you know, kind of getting lost a lot of bit with this Royal Commission and it's kind of fallen away, which is responsible lending. Mm. There is an argument that the banks are going to have to definitely take this a lot more seriously mm. and verify actual living expenses for applications rather than customer-declared applica- living expenses. Mm. What's your view? Have you heard much of what's happening behind the scenes at the banks there? And Yeah. Um, look, I've only seen what... Generally, I haven't been, you know, obviously working in a bank for a while. Um, Might have some friends still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, th- I think it's about the mix. You know, these are all private institutions. We're a, we're a civil society where people are left to make their own decisions. <laughs> but there's clearly, you know, issues are in when it comes to debt, and this is where the responsible lending comes in. You know, a lot of people are talked into, you know dreams of, you know, wealth and stuff like that and mm. they take on debt and, you know, it's been going on forever. Sure, yeah. So our big institutions, are, uh, and this is the whole point of the Royal Commission, the, particularly the big four, but all the, all the banks, we've got a bit of a responsibility to the broader community and not to sort of pander to that and put that in there. So, look, I think we've got to find the right mix. I think, you know, you, in, in any society all through time when things are going really well, lending standards ease. Mm. And, you know, everyone wants to push the money out and, mm. you know, and that's human. Well, it's great, you know, both in terms of the people who are borrowing the money, either the market's going up, let's get yep. in. Yeah, exactly. And the people lending the money, let's make some, you know, let's hit our targets and then, then yep. and get, you know, get our bonuses. I think the message is loud and clear. I think the banks, you know, the banks, like any big organisation, have their shortcomings, but, geez, they, they invest a lot in this sort of stuff around culture, around behaviours, around leadership. Um, and I think they'll find the right balance, you know, with working with the regulators around this. I think there was an overreaction uh, to Hain. One thing I did, I can tell you from working at a bank, you know, um, when I was at ANZ, there were 48,000 people. Um, wow. You know, these are big organisations. Mm. And, you know, when, you, when you're operating a business at the coalface, even a big retail business, um, there's got to be some discretion there, you know, and that's what you want in any business. You want people and people want to be able to make some decisions. 
But then when it comes down the pipe from the very top, you know, we do not want to, you know, get on the front pages for, you know, lending yep. this or that. Mm -hmm. And then the whole risk incentive for someone at the coalface lending either to small business or mortgages or something is just like, I can't stuff up. So yep. they just shut us up. Yeah. So that's what happened. That's what happened last year. Yep. Mm. And all your discretion goes. I think we're going to go back to a point where, you know, they, they, they've recast what responsible lending looks like and you mm -hmm. describe that situation with Westpac, they're all doing it and we'll find a new space. But you can't tell banks what they should do. You just got to try and avoid them doing stuff that's really sort of system systemically mm -hmm. Well, systemically threatening in terms of stability of the economy and the financial system, but systematically ripping, you know, taking advantage of people who don't know better. I mean, you, you know, it's the, the reason none of the institutional banking stuff was ever brought to the Royal Commission is it's a level playing field. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's ANZ versus yep. JP Morgan. It's Westpac yep. versus Citigroup. That was the markets I was involved in. And, mm. you know, big boys, you can all fight yep. it out. You got to play by the rules. But at the retail level, there's massive information asymmetries. The reason we want trust, we actually want trust in our telecommunications provider, our energy provider, yep. our insurance provider, our bankers, because mm. none of us really care, know, have the ability to make those kind of calculations. Mm. If those institutions, which are at best oligopolies, if not duopolies, mm. with a lot of government protections in many ways, are they taking advantage of everyday Australians? Yep. Well, they're going to get... People are going to get upset eventually. And, yeah. and that's what we saw with the Royal Commission, the, the rip-off stuff that people didn't like. And interestingly, because is it the Hilda? Hilda you yeah, I know what you're talking about. It, yeah. It's a Hilda report. Hilda, the database. Yeah. The yeah. really detailed database on what. And living. You know, yeah. yeah. Yes. But also there's been uh, surveys done on average Australians, and I wish I could refer to exactly what it is, but well, something like four out of five don't even know how to calculate percentages. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, so, I mean, look, the individuals, we need to take responsibility for if we're going to go and buy a house for God's sake and you're going to go and borrow $500,000 or a million dollars or whatever, I think it's actually the responsibility of the individual to also understand what the hell they're doing. Mm. But you can see how a situation, how the, how the banks, if they've had targets mm. and how it systemically. Well, it's also know, individuals, you know, not just at the banks, but mortgage brokers or yep. whatever who, you know, you know the lines crossed when you know people know when it's going from taking advantage of someone who doesn't fully yeah. understand to, to you then convincing them to do something. Right. And that's and, and you know there's a and this is the whole point of what you know Haynes said. But it's every business there's a fine line between the hard sell and the rip off. Yeah, yeah. You know, yep. and, and then when you're talking about future wealth, when you're talking and people uh, see it on the news every night, read it in the papers, see it yep. on the internet, you, know, you can make a hundred grand. And, it's you know, rife yeah. in the property industry. The people <laughs> cannot save those kind of gains. No. Yeah, and I mean that was the that was the problem, and that will remain the problem for a little while longer. I think with property is mm. that people, you know, see riches and wealth positions that they'll never generate through their own hard work. I think the good thing that I'm noticing is that the banks, um, while some banks are still proving, if you're a good customer, you've got good credit, you know, you've got your deposit, your jobs are fine. You know, banks are still lending. I think what they're not doing, and they're actually making, you know, smart risk assessments now and they're mm. looking at things and going, actually, there's something you're doing that's upsetting us. You know, maybe it's gambling or Airbnb, uh, <laughs> you know, after pay or there's, you know, maybe it's three jobs in the last two years or something mm. like that. They're looking at things a bit more, yeah. you know, the soft facts within an a application. A bit like the olden days. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and um, Well, the olden days mean 10 years ago and, and it's a distinction because essentially what happened in the wake of Hain in those first two, you know, sections where it was about responsible lending to small business and mortgages and the banks just went, whoa. And they tightened up effectively 
for everyone. Yep. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But now what they're doing is that it's easing back and then they're focusing in on areas where they probably should have been focusing the anyway. Yeah, yeah, riskier lending, mm. so marginal. You know, the, the, the basic model, the best sort of simplest model, which isn't perennial, but yeah, you sort of in your mid to late 20s, maybe early 30s, you take out a mortgage which is just eye-watering for you and your partner um, and you're going to – it's not just wage growth. You're going to get promoted. Mm. You're going you're to get bigger wage increases. Mm, sure. And, you know, especially in the service-based economy, I mean, yeah. we get better and better until the age of sort of 50 in calculative and wisdom and stuff. So in a service-based economy, you get a mortgage then, it's eye-watering, but, you know, you're probably not going to be paying it off over 30 years because yeah. you're going to get – your pay will probably double in the next 10 years, not because of wage inflation, but because you get promoted. Yeah. Yeah, it's so really that, that's So that's a basic model. It's been around forever. Um, it's the, it's the person with five investment properties who's on a hundred grand a year. Mm. It's the person who's taking out a mortgage who's, you know, 61 for yep. 30 years. It's, it's a, there's a variety of where we've eased things up and become more flexible. It's those peripheral things. And where there's common got a, sense really when you think about it. Well, it's common sense, mm. but that's where there's a contract between a bank and an individual to work it out. Yeah. And of course the other thing about banking, which we've completely lost sight of, including by some bankers is that their job is to take risk. If every single yeah. loan they make comes good, then they've stuffed up because they're not providing enough risk capital to our economy, mm. and especially small business. They're there to pull the risk of the community mm. and you know take a certain amount of hits, not stupid amounts. And, mm. of course, that's where things like monetary policy and financial stability come in because you know bankers have to do that in the context of not having wild swings in asset prices yep. and stuff. So anyway, I mean, I think yeah. I think we're getting. It sounds like from what you guys are saying and from what I'm reading and hearing, is that we're getting back to yep. a more a better space, but it's definitely tighter than it was in 2016, 17. Mm. 2016, 17 was it was cowboy stuff. It needed right? to be tighter, especially yeah, those did. sectors you mentioned. You know, the older, you know, the big investment properties, the big borrowing capacities. You know, say 14, 15, you could borrow 10 times income, which is crazy. So a couple <laughs> earning 300 grand could borrow $3 million like, mm. to buy investment properties. Now it's like, you know, six times. So it's 1.8. And I don't think it's going to go back to your 10 times. So I think they've stopped and that will stop the big spruikers out there that, you know, you can go and build these oh, huge portfolios and things like it that. It won't stop them. It'll just basically well, probably just slightly change cheap, their message. Cheaper, cheaper properties. <laughs> um, always around. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Warren, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. A dumbo. A dumbo. Property dumbo. Property dumbo. Um, well, putting aside um, the very the, the person who bought their third, fourth, and fifth investment property in Sydney or Melbourne in 2017 and 18, i.e. they should have known better. Um, and that was just greed, so bad luck. Um, <laughs> Speculators. The, the, my personal experience, having lived on the northern side of Sydney from the lower to the upper all through my life, is the greatest property dumbo for me is rendering a house. Right. We invented brick because <laughs> it might not look pretty, well, that's bad, um, is that it wears well. And you don't have to wash it and then... And paint it. And paint it or anything. You just leave it. And it's really smart. It was great technology. <laughs> and uh, rendering a house just 
reintroduces ongoing maintenance costs and that's assuming you do a good job on it. So I think the property Dumbo for me is the, 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 <laughs> the desire of everyone in Sydney to render their house do, in the last 15 years. Do you know this years. through experience, personal experience? I rendered my last house. There you go. <laughs> and then I sold it because I didn't want to repaint it and yeah. bought a brick house. <laughs> what was you I realise thinking? a folly of your way. <laughs> it looked great, I must say. That. One of our biggest sponsors is a rendering company. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Now we've got no sponsors. We but, are um, brought to you purely by the generosity of Chris and Veronica. <laughs> No, I mean, there is definitely um, some silliness there. I mean, I, I think red bricks coming back in fashion. If if you look at the the younger so you generation, wait long enough, it'll come um, back. Well, yeah. I think, you know those those you know middle suburb red bricks, nineteen sixties, mid century modern style. Um, they're back, I think. Yeah. So uh, don't render over those because you're devaluing your asset, plus getting all your maintenance maintenance costs. <laughs> Uh, Warren, that's a good one. I like that. So thank you so much for coming and joining us. We've had a, a wide-ranging conversation, mm. which we often do on this podcast. And um, a lot of these, you know, I love the conversations with economists because we are looking at it's global, you know, and, and there are things and levers that impact on us here. Um, and to understand that and, and put it into context is is great. Uh, so very much appreciate you sharing your, your expertise and wisdom with us. Thank you. It's been great to have the conversation and... Uh... Good luck, and I hope you continue to get uh, good forthright analysis from your guests. Thank you very much. <laughs> we want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the responsibility of a buyer to buy a good asset, right? The idea of this boot camp came to me when we were talking with Warren about the idea that banks are starting to ease up and borrowing money is becoming a little bit easier again, right? And we talked about serviceability. That's what banks are interested in, right? They want to make sure that you can repay that loan and they want to make sure also that they're not exposed, overly exposed in the event that you can't pay back that loan, that they will get their money back. So if they perceive uh, a property to be risky, for instance, they might say, well, we're not going to lend you 80% of that property. We'll lend you 70 for argument's sake. So really what that means is prices could fall 30% and there's a forced sale and they'll still get their money back. So that's the bank protecting their risks. But as a buyer, you have to protect your risks, okay? So being able to borrow a certain amount of money is great. Being able to service that loan or pay that loan back is great or make the repayments is great. But you need to be factoring in the idea that you need to buy an asset that's going to go up in value over time, you know, that not is going to fall in value or not is going to or isn't going to just stay the same. You want it to go up. Otherwise, why bother buying a property? So I just want to reiterate the importance of, uh, you know, and particularly this is a, an issue certainly that we've had in recent times around new apartments and off-the-plan apartments where people have actually seen that valuations are becoming in a lot less than what the agreed purchase price is. So that that's a situation where people are starting off with negative equity. And if they've bought a property that is not very scarce, i.e. it's part of a huge complex and there's lots and lots of other properties exactly the same. It's going to take years, maybe even decades, for them to actually get their money back. So that's a responsibility and a risk that is borne completely by you, the buyer. And so I, once again, when the banks ease up and make it easier for you to borrow money again, take your eye off that serviceability for a moment and really looking at what you're buying and take responsibility for buying a quality asset. It's really good. I like it a lot. Okay. So I'll use it. I might use that actually in clients. <laughs> oh, good. Brilliant.
That's a really like that one. Because people think that. They think, oh, the bank's going to lend on it, so it must be all right. Yeah. No, the bank doesn't give a shit about you. No. It just wants to give you the money. Yes. <laughs> and they just want to make sure they get it back if you fail to pay it. Tune in next week when we interview a demographer, Mark McCrindle. Now, demography, what is that? It's the study of who we are, what we do, where we live, where we go, what we value, all those things. And as a society, obviously, these questions are important for us to understand when we're looking at where we live or where we invest. What is happening with our cities? You know, what will population growth do? Will Gen Z and Gen Alpha buy properly the same way we have? It's all going to be answered in our next episode, so please join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.